Welcome to Hunter and Craft Radio. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. On this episode, Chad and myself are joined by Jeff Goldenberg, Head of Growth at Borowell. Borowell is a really innovative financial technology company that we've gotten to know quite well having worked in the same office space at 111 here in Toronto. We do an interesting panel scenario in this episode where Chad talks about growth in the B2B space and Jeff talks about growth in the B2C space and kind of just breaks down this whole topic of growth in general and what that means for startups. Hope you enjoy the discussion. Here it is. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks very much for having me. So I always like to start off a little bit of context, you know, for the listeners, just give them a bit of background on yourself. We can start with that. Sure. Um, so I, I guess I consider myself to be a lifelong entrepreneur. I've had the bug ever since I was a kid. I did a lot of formal education. I got bachelor's in Montreal and, and got my MBA at York. And as soon as I graduated from there, I jumped right into the startup scene. And I'm old, so this was sort of at the <laughs> tail end of the startup, bu- at the dot-com bubble. Um, where people still think we had a, ch- had a chance, but we didn't. But I worked with two really interesting dot-com companies that were just way ahead of their time, and I had like sort of business development roles. And me and a friend of mine from uh, uh, school, we both got hired together for both these companies, and it was just a blast. We learned a ton. Um, then, in a, in a random turn of events, I became the director of marketing for the Toronto Argos, so I, I jumped into sports for a season. <laughs> I could talk for an hour about that, but I'll... I won't. It was just a very interesting learning experience. And then when I left that, I decided I wanted to start something, but I didn't really know what to start. Um, so I did what anyone would do. I just went to Vegas with a friend for the weekend. <laughs> and, you know, we were sort of into playing poker then. We had this group that met um, at this U of T restaurant, played in the basement every week. And we were, like, really into it. We weren't playing for big stakes, but we were just, like, I wanted to learn everything there was to know about the game. So we were there in Vegas, we went to play some poker, and we noticed that these players were being treated like royalty, like everyone wanted autographs and photos and talked to my friend on the phone. And a friend of mine, it wasn't even me, had this idea, like there should be a poker camp, just like there's baseball fantasy camp or hockey fantasy camp. But poker would be even cooler because, A, you can have it in Vegas and you can layer on sort of like the Vegas experience. So you're not just sitting in like a holiday in an Akron, Ohio, <laughs> learning to play poker with some 70-year-old. You actually do like the nightclub thing and have some fun, but you actually have a chance of beating these guys, unlike if you're playing hockey or baseball with them, like you can't, they have to play like on their knees or something, right? <laughs> so, so I cold called sort of the Michael Jordan of poker, I don't know if you guys are fans, but his name was Phil Helmuth, and okay. asked yeah. him if he was interested in running a poker camp in Vegas, and back at the time it was booming, they had agents, so he said, I'm interested, but you gotta talk to my agent. And um, the agent said no a gazillion times, and I convinced him, and we started running his poker camp at uh, Caesars Palace a couple times a year, where people would pay three or four grand to come down, and there would be seminars and hands-on demonstrations and tournaments and parties and nightclubs and all kinds of stuff. So I ran that business in, in various forms for eight or nine years. Um, it grew. Um, Harrah's bought, which is a big um, entertainment company that owns a lot of casinos, they bought this hotel in downtown Vegas called uh, The Horseshoe, who owned the World Series of Poker, the WSOP brand. And they basically bought the hotel, kept the brand, sold the hotel, and moved the brand to the Rio, which was one of their big properties just off the strip. 
and turned it into a huge thing. The World Series of Poker is 55 big tournaments that happen every year, and they crown all these champions. So we always kept in touch with these guys, and they were like, well, what do you think of creating a new brand under our brand and doing it with us? And I licensed the WSOP brand from them and turned it into the WSOP Academy, which was the brand. And now, instead of relying on Phil Hellmuth, we can have gazillions of different players to choose from, which is a very interesting lesson uh, for anyone starting like a talent-based business. Um, you never want to build something where eventually the talent is going to have all the power. Like when, if the Rolling Stones decide to go on tour, they tell the promoter like what percentage they can keep of it. You know what I mean? It's not the promoter making tons of money off the back of Rolling Stones because they have all the power. So what was cool about moving from Phil, who, who we loved and still worked with, to anyone was they were constantly pumping out new talent and it could always be someone new. So we weren't beholden to them deciding one day that instead of $2,000, they wanted $25,000. So, and, and the other thing was that Harris had tons of casinos, so they had buyers um, for the event. So we did 50% of them in Vegas. We went from doing two or three of them a year to doing like 30 or 40 of them a year. So it was pretty intense. But I got an amazing poker education. <laughs> I've basically been like trained by like 20 or 30 the of the best. best players ever. <laughs> so like, I'm not as good as I should be considering, but... I played last night. I still remember. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, so when did you go to MIT? When was that? Um, MIT was like an executive program. It's called the Entrepreneurial Master's Program. So I'll back up a bit on that because it was really sort of life-changing for me. Um, the, um, there's an organization called Entrepreneur's Organization. It's a global organization. It's, people know YPO, Young Presidents Organization, more. But it's the same idea but for entrepreneurs. So they have minimum standards on like what you have to own and how big of a company and all that. Hmm. But um, I was a member of that, and them, in conjunction with MIT, had this program called the EMP, because it's not enough acronyms, the Entrepreneurial <laughs> Master's Program. And that was um, 65 entrepreneurs selected from an application pool of whatever from all around the world that get together there um, in cohorts every year um, to basically learn from really amazing people who basically just tell you what to do. You know, they're not teaching you, like, the theory. They're just, like... You want to get really big? Go do this. Like, you want to start a good culture? Go do this. And it's like the people who had been through the war. So because of MIT, we got access to all their, like, success stories. You know, HubSpot. They're the, the senior vice president of sales for HubSpot basically, like, showed us their secret sauce. That's on how they hire, train. Yeah, Mark Roberge. Yeah. Awesome guy. On how they hire, train, and retain, and compensate their entire sales team. And they're, like, the best example that I've and then they had guys like the creators of Rock Band or Guitar Heroes, I can't remember, come in and talk to us about what it was like doing that. And that was crazy because they like messed around. They had $5 million of VC money in 10 years where they were doing nothing. And then one day this guitar ended up in a museum as an exhibit and someone had the idea to turn it into a video game and it was like the first week they sold 60,000 units and the second week they sold 120,000 units and the third week they sold 200, but they had like effed around for 10 years trying to figure it out but everyone thinks it's an overnight success so that was really good to hear. But like example, Mark Robert's examples across the board for finance and culture and marketing and um, vision and all this stuff so it was amazing. And it created also an amazing network of people in all these different countries from you know, Canada, the States to Nepal and India and China and everywhere that we just can call on when we need it. Um, and it's been years since I've, I was in that class, but we still, like, it's an active email list where everyone's asking people for help with different things, and it's awesome. Nice. Cool. So let's talk about your role at Borowell right now and kind of how you got to be into, uh, into that company. Sure. Um, 
I've been with Borowell for five months, I believe, five or six months, so it hasn't been very long whatsoever. Um, I was introduced to the company by uh, one of their investors, who I'm very good friends with, and he basically just said they've got this open role for, I guess it was like head of marketing or something, and um, they hadn't had any success filling it, and they weren't going to fill it until they found the right person, and would you go in and talk to them, and I did, and... Um, the more I talked to them, the more interesting it was, and the more I was getting along with the people, and I liked, you know, you guys work in the same place that we do. It's a pretty cool place to work. My seven-year-old son loves coming here. <laughs> I said, that's because everyone's closer to your age than they are my age. But <laughs> I saw him beating up on you in foosball. That's right. He's, he's a machine. Yeah, so he loves coming here, and I can understand that. So yeah, one thing led to another, and um, I ended up taking on this role of head of growth, which is... Um, sort of a combination of marketing and product development and making sure that the different groups are coordinated. Um, so it's been awesome. Um, Borowell is a, um, a marketplace lender. So um, traditionally Canadians um, with good credit went to their bank to get personal loans and it's a very cumbersome process and a very a process that really hasn't changed much in a while. You know, it involves three or four visits to the branch and signing reams of paper and all this stuff and waiting to find out and all this stuff. But meanwhile, most people aren't banking in person anymore. Um, they're doing their bill payments and everything online. So what we basically do is we allow people to apply for and take up uh, a personal loan of up to $35,000 instantly using an algorithm that pulls their credit profile and slices and dices it in a whole bunch of different ways to determine um, what rate and what amount they qualify for. Because, you know, what's really interesting about this and one of the things that really attracted me to borrow well was our typical use case is someone who has a lot of credit card debt at 19.9% refinancing at, say, 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 and just saving a ton of money. And what... The Borowell loan does is it gives everyone a personalized rate based on their credit profile and how much debt they have and all that. So it's not like, okay, everybody, you're 19.9 just because. Yeah. If you have really good credit, you know, you might get 6%. And the, um, it's sort of like the meritocracy of, of, of borrowing. Um, so the idea of taking on the banks is obviously attractive. Canadians have a very set banking infrastructure that we've all grown up with. Um, the idea of really um, using technology, not in a disruptive way, but just in a way that fits with the way we're living the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, interestingly enough, we thought our, our typical borrower was going to be a young millennial, but the average has been much older. Mm -hmm. And we have borrowers into their 70s. And the fact of the matter is, like, we're hardly asking them to, to um, use technology. We're asking them to fill out a form on a website that asks for relatively little information. And they do that for a lot of different things. So... It's really cool. And um, yeah, the idea of just like giving Canadian um, bankers another option is really cool. Nice. And what's, what exactly is the stage of the company right now? Like how many people you guys have? Like sure. what's, kinda, what's, uh, what's coming up for you guys in 2016? Sure. So um, we're 12 people now, um, which is a really nice size in terms of like we all kind of have an idea what everyone else is up to. But we have enough people for everyone to specialize in what they're good at if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Especially in co-working spaces like this, we're all on top of each other. <laughs> so there aren't a lot of secrets. Um, we raised, um, I guess, a seed round, although it was kind of big because we have to raise both the debt that we place through our loans and the equity that we use to grow the company. So we raised both of those, I guess, at the beginning of the year. Um, 
a small bank gave us the debt money and then um, sort of like a who's who of Toronto's financial service all-stars put in the equity, nice. which was obviously uh, an appealing thing for me joining because the investor team is really important. And we basically went out to prove the concept that people would trust our website to give us the information, that we could put out competitive offers that they would take, and that we could do it at a price where there's a promise of, um, of a profit one day. And um, that's what we've been in the process of doing. We've been fairly successful at it. Um, we've placed sort of the amount of capital that we were entrusted with and have asked for more, so that's great. <laughs> and now we're in the process of a, a big round of both debt raising and uh, a Series A equity round. And we have a full-time head of capital markets who does this stuff all year long. Because this company, I mean, if it goes well, it's always gonna be in some form of raising given like the debt capital side too. And having someone who's just on it all the time is amazing. Nice. Well, we've got Chad here as well, obviously. And uh, Chad is really focused on building out kind of the growth engine, uh, just building out post beyond from a B2B SaaS perspective. And obviously Borowell being on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum being B2C um, and you building out that growth engine. We want to uh, get into your book, but uh, after that, we're going to do a little bit of a, you know, kind of a panel on, uh, you know, the differences between building out B2B high growth SaaS companies and B2C. Um, so that's going to be really interesting, but let's talk about your book for a second. So um, obviously, you know, what's, what's it all about? How did you come to uh, you know, create that, uh, the idea for the book and how's, sure. it, how's it been going so far? Sure, yeah, I'll tell it as a little bit of a story because it was actually an interesting experience. When I was studying, um, I guess, technical marketing and, and like what I can do to make myself better, um, I had an aha moment when I realized that a lot of the stuff can be taught, like you can learn it. You don't need to be a coder. You don't need to know how to like make a website from scratch. You just need to be like really resourceful and you need to try stuff and you gotta screw up a whole bunch of stuff and figure out where to get the answers from and get better and more confident. And the more confident you come, the more better you become. And it's just this wonderful process. And I was like, wow, that's too bad because most people say, oh, I, don't, I can't do HTML so, or CSS, so I can't do any of this growth hacking stuff. And I was like, well, it's not true. Like, I don't know any of this stuff I, and I do stuff. And I realized it's not the tactics that was important. It was more the strategy. So anyway, I had this idea to share this concept, this moment I had that like you don't have to be a, a coder or a big nerd to be able to do some <laughs> of this stuff. You just have to look at it a little bit differently and then get comfortable with a relatively small amount of tools, right? Um, you are a bit of a nerd. But. I am a bit of a nerd, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I love, I love this stuff. <laughs> um, on a good day, work doesn't feel like work. <laughs> so um, I had the idea to do this book and I started putting together um, like an outline for it, because I can write really quickly, I just need to know what I'm writing. I need it all sort of, it needs to make sense, it needs to flow, I need to have like it all blocked out and then I can just write. So I started working on this thing and lo and behold, someone sends me this link and I click on this link and it's this thing called the Ultimate Growth Hacker Sourcebook and it's targeting SaaS marketers specifically, which wasn't my target at all, but it was like 65 growth hacks organized over the pirate metrics, AARRR, model that the SaaS marketers use and it was like exactly what I was going for and I was like I'm not one of those guys to be like damn I'm just like let me talk to this guy so he it turns out he's in New Zealand he owns a um, an ad a, a marketing agency that at the time was called Tiger Tiger and he published this post and I emailed him and I said 
amazing post. Congrats. What's your intention for this? What are you doing it for? And he said, I'm just trying to get um, attention from my agency and get clients. He had sold another agency and was in the process of building this new one up bigger than the old one. Um, and I was like, cool. Well, here's what I want to do. Tell me if you want in. Um, I want to take the book. I want to expand it. I want to change the target from um, SaaS marketers to di just any digital startup marketer or digital marketer because it's not limited to just SaaS marketers mm -hmm. and build it out. And then I had this idea for these case studies, which would be like, there's going to be a whole bunch of growth topics that you can't turn into a recipe. How are we going to handle that? Well, let's find the people who did it and do it more as a story. So he said, yeah, mate, <laughs> let's do it. And um, we became friends and we split it up. And he was just like, I'm not writing anymore. The, the, um, the blog post was 35,000 words. Like he gave it. And um, I have a new respect for 35,000 words. It's a lot of words. And he was like, you got, you got to do the rest of the, the writing, but let's do it. It'll be fun. So um, we figured out a, a way to reorganize the book um, into a, a structure that would make more sense for, for more generalized marketers. And um, yeah, we, got to, we figured out the companies that we wanted to talk to. But about a week later, um, the blog post got picked up by a small number of really influential um, sites, I think like moz.com and inbound.org and even forbes.com and the next thing they know there was like 40 or 50,000 views of this thing like instantly and comments from like the who's who about how awesome it is and like you know inbound requests and stuff and we are like wow that's amazing <laughs> and the big aha thing there was like you don't need 200 people pushing the message like one or two right position ones saying the right thing and it's like bang so we threw up something to collect email addresses and we sort of accelerated the whole process. And the next thing was like, oh, this is going to take six months, maybe, maybe a year. And we have all these people interested right now. They're not going to care about this <laughs> in a year. They're not going to remember. It's not that the topic will be um, old because we're updating it all the time. But so we decided we'd do a Kickstarter. Um, and that's a really hard thing to do. That's probably the topic of another podcast, but they're, they're very tricky. They look a lot sexier than they really are. Mm -hmm. They really do. Like most things. Like most things. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I was on some, a publisher, a, like a self-publisher's website, and he had one of those little toaster pop-ups for a seven-day e-course on how to self-publish. And I went through the course, and I read everything. And by the end of the course, I was like, I don't want to do that. I want you to do that. And I was like, wow, content marketing. Ah. <laughs> because it was like, wow, this guy just put out a course on how to not need him. And at the end of it, I was so compelled to need him. So he had also done um, Dan Norris's book, The Seven Day Startup. So he was already plugged into the same scene that we would be talking to. And we did a deal with him and um, me and Mark uh, from Tiger Tiger and um, Tom from uh, Insurgent Publishing are all partners on the book now. And he's been amazing help. So... He helped us with the Kickstarter. He helped us everything. So it's really made our job a lot easier. We can just focus. He's got you know podcast interviews and guest blog posts and just done so much of the promotion and the blocking and tackling. It's really cool. He was in the U.S. Army and was like deployed overseas and he started his publishing company there. And then um, like while he was overseas. And then when he was discharged, him and his wife decided they weren't going to live anywhere. They were just going to travel around. And he basically travels around wherever he feels like going and public and promotes the books he's working on. <laughs> so yeah, we came up with the name that was cool. We did the Kickstarter and we got it to fund. So that was 
uh, a lot of hard work. Um, and then I guess the last point is that we, for the case studies, I was going to just research other people's case studies and write my own. And then I was like, well, why don't you call these guys and told them, tell them 50,000 people read the blog post and you're doing a book and would you like to be included? And lo and behold, like people were really responsive. Two out of three probably said yes. Um, the best one was I emailed Zenefits the day that they were announcing their half a billion dollar raise. Yeah. And um, their publicist, who's really, really nice, was like, I really want to reserve a spot, but we're announcing this $500 million raise today. Like, can we talk on Monday? And I'm like, yes, we can absolutely talk on Monday. Go do your thing. Like, that's crazy. Um, so she said, who do you want to talk to? And I said, who do you recommend? And they said, well, our CMO was the number two employee and has been working there since like around Parker's kitchen table. Do you want to talk to him? And I was like, yeah. So I interviewed him and it was just amazing. And um, amazing lessons. You know, we talked to Craig Miller, the CMO at Shopify. Wow. We talked to Ethan Song, who founded Frank and Oak. Uh, we talked to Rob Walling from Drip uh, Email Marketing, which is a wicked company. Um, there's a gazillion that I'm forgetting that are in there, but like really, really cool people. And it was awesome to get to know them and, and hear like the commonalities between their stories. So that's going to kind of make our book different. Um, the growth hacks themselves, we think of like a recipe book. You can pick it up and flip through it and have some fun and skip to the parts you need to when there's something you need. But I think the case studies, like the from the trenches stories are going to be what makes it really unique. For sure. So why don't we, uh, just to give people a little bit more light, so we'll, we're obviously going to sh- link to it in the show notes and get everyone to pick it up, but why don't you talk about the Zapier one? Because I think that's uh, that's one that comes up a lot in conversation, just how people can kind of stitch things together. Maybe just to give people a bit of a preview, maybe talk a little bit about that they could take away. You know, sure. So Zapier was like the nerdiest, most useful thing I ever <laughs> learned, and I was so proud of myself when I learned it because it's like a, um, a first aid kit. You know, like you can use it to like patch up your tire or put a <laughs> bandaid on your elbow. And it's basically like all these companies have open APIs, but they don't all integrate with each other because I would, I'm not in this business, but I would imagine these integrations take a ton of custom development and you can't just do everyone. And what these guys are is basically like a branch between APIs of different companies. So if you want company A to send data to company B, so company B can do their activity with company A's data, you can kind of make that happen. And they've got this crazy wizard that just lets you build these rules-based zaps, (laughs) (laughs) for lack of a better term, and you can just make neat things happen. An example that I did for the book was um, obviously when, when you do a Kickstarter at the beginning, you want to get like a certain amount raised really quickly. Um, although they, they promise Nirvana if you do that and you get there and you're like, okay, now what? And you, it's like you kind of have to do it again. But um, you, you call on all your friends and colleagues, hey, you feel like supporting me, great. But I had a list of people I wanted to email and I didn't know how to email them like to guarantee delivery. Seems like a really weird problem for 2015, but it's real. The struggle is real. (laughs) If you send email the wrong way, it goes to promotions. How often do you check Gmail promotions? Check them once in a while, but I think it's only because I'm in marketing (laughs) and I want to see what's going on. But anyway, so if I did a big BCC, I was pretty sure it was heading to Spamville, right? And if I did a MailChimp because of all the crap that you have to have on it, it it's obviously not personal. So I use Zapier to link a Google Sheets just email list with my Gmail account 
to send one-off, one-at-a-time emails. Just nice. ding, 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 ding. I think it's 250 a day you could do or something, so maybe it took me a couple of days to get through them. But I figured that was like a really easy way to sort of guarantee delivery and personalization at the same time. But honestly, like that's there's, really they got, imagine like Salesforce, like that's a company that's on there and all those different things you can integrate with Salesforce to pull the data out, put it in. I bet you Zapier could do cool things with data, uh, with marketing attribution too. I bet you maybe they can solve some of those little problems, especially with Salesforce. Borowell uses a company called Cloud Lending, which is a, like a layer on Salesforce. So we have to deal with Salesforce a lot. Although um, two weeks ago, we just launched a brand new loan management system that puts most of the important data in our hands. So it's like a new, um, it's amazing. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. I'll jump in on that quickly because that's really interesting. Like how, I mean, I've used Zapier, I've used IFTTT or whatever. Like I find one thing that, I, you know, the companies that grow, do growth so well are, I find are so open in their integrations. Like Slack, for example, I actually just got an email from Zapier saying, uh, hey, we've got a bunch of new Slack integrations, right? Yeah, like those and, you know, Slack is a perfect example of a company that's been so open in their approach, like hooking into everything, hooking into your, you know, any type of tech stack that you have and you use, hooking into all that. So just, you know, a side note we can get into later, but just like, you know, growth and kind of this open API movement where, uh, and we face that a lot with Post Beyond where we're trying to, you know, every company is completely different. Every company uses different technology, but if you want to grow, you need to be able to fit into all of those. Um, maybe Chad, you had uh, yeah. a follow up. No, that's a, it's a really interesting topic. I think in general, every company has this idea of a stack and I know we were going to talk a bit about that, but you know, everyone's different. There's some legacy tools that aren't integrated well at all. And then you have Slack and it's like these, this huge paradigm shift between what people are using and how they're using them. And so that's an awesome example that we should probably even take up <laughs> as a group, the one-on-one. I think the personalization topic is a really big one. And, you know, mass emailing and, you know, people just see through this in today's game. So how do you actually mass connect with people in a real way? But integrations themselves are so important to every business. You know, you need your data to talk to each other. You need to be able to build on the funnels and actually the, the experience people have. And I think that's what we'll talk about as well. But the end to end experience for the customer you have to take, you know, what you care about internally and having people's data and being able to like process it and do it, that's all great, but they don't care really right. about what you, what you have, right? They, they want to make sure that the thing works and that it, it is a seamless thing for them. And that's where stitching this stuff together and where Zapier and IFTT and some of these really cool innovative products that allow you to do that come in and you can kind of talk, you know, these, these systems can talk to each other and you're going to get data across silos and businesses and, and how that actually works, you know, how that comes together is really fascinating. So well, when people talk about like, like a good growth hacker, they think of the end result, like where is it now? How big are they? 200,000 stores, whatever. But the fact of the matter is my definition of a good growth marketer is someone who has the chops to get something out to test quick and easy that doesn't waste the time and resources and money of investing in what you would normally have to invest in mm -hmm. to get the concept proven. Yeah. And something like Zapier can be really useful. We used a click to email um, link for a referral program that BCC does. It was like, look, let's see a stuffed email box full of um, client referrals before we go and do anything crazy. Because it's, you, you, can't, you can't spend, you can't, you, there's no money to waste on building something. So a good growth marketer to me is someone who can stitch something together, not because that's where it's going to end up, but because you could test it for $1,000 and find out if there's an interest before 
moving to the next step. Does that make sense? Totally, for sure. That's actually one of the biggest things. I mean, with this Hunter and Craft project, you know, we've we've been focused on, if nothing else, putting out great content because it's a it's a great body of work to have, but. We haven't even really growth hacked it ourselves, right? Which is an interesting thing that you know, <laughs> we're really we, yeah we're still waiting to kind of figure. Out. I mean, there's a lot of we have a lot of ideas. You know, I love to, you know talk about your kind of framework for for designing experiments and that type of thing. Well, there is no silver bullet. Yeah. So let's get that out of the way. <laughs> if someone asked you like, what's the growth hack to build my company? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and it would probably take me a while to figure it out. Um, but. If you start thinking, if you start measuring the right things and thinking about things that will move the needle for that thing and have an idea of where you're going in terms of like where you need to be to achieve your goal for that phase, then you start thinking at least about the right things. And as soon as you start thinking about the right things, you start focusing on things that can really move the needle. Yeah. Um, and I think at the end of the day, a growth hacker is just searching for leverage. Like anyone could spend a dollar click against Amazon spending a dollar click or you know, TD Bank spending a dollar po uh, post on Facebook against RBC's dollar on Facebook. Like, you'll be better or worse, but it'll be close, right? There's not a lot of leverage. And if that click doesn't convert in direct response, it's done. I think what a growth marketer looks for is areas where you can spend a buck and maybe have a chance to get three back. And where that comes in a lot is content. Because you, a good blog post could lead to, you know, years of indexed traffic. And it costs you anywhere from nothing to cheap. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a great hack on how to get really cheap content that we've been using, but I don't want the competitors to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so content is, is, it's become such a crappy buzzword that you almost don't want to like hear about it anymore. But I saw it work the other day in real time and it was beautiful <laughs> and it's changed how I'm thinking about some stuff. And there's sort of a hybrid between content and advertising that I think is really interesting. Um, especially in B2B. Because I'll ask, let me ask the interviewer, interviewers a question. Do you guys get often get called from other companies hawking services, like on the phone or email? Do you get pitched by a lot of companies? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah me too. I get tons. And they call me on the phone and they're relentless. And I don't know if you've noticed, there's a new trend to put a drip campaign that starts to try to make you feel guilty that you haven't gotten back to them. Have you noticed this one? Yep. So on the 7th, I've been trying really hard to get in touch with you. <laughs> Seems like you must be a really busy guy. <laughs> Anywho, I'd really like to talk to you about my whatever. And it's like, I'm not getting in touch with you. I guarantee it. Like, I guarantee I'm not getting in touch with you. But then you read one dumb blog post and it's like, holy cow, that's like sort of a problem I'm dealing with. And there's a solution attached to it. And the next thing you know, you're on a demo with this company who may have the solution to this problem that's really important to you now and you buy. And even in B2B, like that's how the stuff is being bought now. It's not being bought by being shoved down people's throat. So I know there's some magic in this content stuff. I know people have to pay attention to it. I think people need to let other people um, see themselves in the content. And that's what happened the other day. The other day I shared one of Borowell's blog posts, which was a case study about a woman who refinanced expensive credit card debt with us and saved $12,000 in interest. It was out of debt something like six years earlier, just by making a small incremental extra payment, you know, as a fixed payment. Um, and I tweeted it out on my personal account, which isn't huge, just saying, um, this is one of my favorite blog posts we've done at Borowell. And a friend of mine said, I'm, I, this girl's name was Cindy. Like, I'm Cindy. Do you know anyone who can actually fix this problem? 
I was like, indeed I do, and it was us, and he didn't know that I was working there. So he looked at the website, he's like, is this a scam? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not a scam, or at least not in my five months, as, as it looked like one. So he applied, and he got $27,000 of debt refinanced. He said, like, there's a pep in his step, because he's not drowning in interest, and he knows when he's going to be out of it, and he can afford the monthly payments. And it all came from me just tweeting this blog post that this guy saw himself in. And that was like a light bulb. <laughs> it's like stop jam jamming brand cell through the pipe. Well, that's that's content, you know, marketing in itself. You know, the buzzword you mentioned. I think that there's a really interesting topic around quality over quantity, and we're in mm -hmm. such this information age where it's a ton of quantity all the time. You can get it from any angle, from any space you want, but the quality stuff does still rise to the top yeah. very much. So I mean, we talked about Sam Altman and the playbook and. Yeah. a bunch of this stuff that everyone knows and yeah. everyone hears about. Why do they hear about that through all the noise, right? So it's a signal noise thing. Right. And I think that seeing yourself in the content, it's a big thing. And I think yeah. for us in B2B, which I know we'll get into, it's it's huge. And you mentioned yeah. that, you know, it's seeing something that works out well and then propelling it with the paid media side, yeah. which I'd love to hear more of your ideas on. But that is so huge. You know, if you, if you as a person are going to read that blog post, what are you going to take away from it that's going to like... It's such an awesome passive way to the, the reality of buying, right? And I think everyone's problem that we'll talk about that I've certainly learned in the B2B side for the last five years or so is that you're, you're not, to your point, jamming it down anyone's throat. No one will ever buy that way anymore moving no, forward. not anymore. It's matching to their buying process. And so, you know, people have a selling process and a buying process. And if you're not, if you don't actually understand what their process is, they're going to go through. I think the hardest thing for any person in sales is that they're selling against, like they don't actually understand how the people buy. Right. So they're just selling their process and then it's just super confusing and people tune them out and then it's over with, right? right? And so you don't really spend the time to truly understand it's it, with the big organizations for sure. We can talk about enterprise, but it's how they buy is fundamentally broken. And so what you're figuring out is how broken it is yeah. and what you need to do to make sure you get through that. So that, that's where content comes in. That's where content accelerates it. That's where people can learn without you. I think you know, we can talk, definitely wanted to point some people with some resources I've been into lately on this topic, but you know, the idea of someone being a mobilizer for you and actually being able to do a deal without you. And I think that's the same thing that content right. provides on a consumer lens, but also in B2B, you need to give people stuff they can learn with. They don't want to hear from you all the time. Right. They want to do their own offline activity. They want yeah. to learn on their own. And they don't want you to know that they don't know. So when they get on the phone with you, they want to, they want to be at your level. And so content needs to fuel that. They yeah. need to be able to sit at home and read that article, read that piece and think, wow, that's intriguing. And yeah. now I've learned to be able to get on the phone with you and actually have a level-headed conversation. Because yeah. uh, as a seller, you're always ahead of people. You're always thinking, you know, you live in the space, you're right. selling it, you're doing it, no matter what business you're yeah. in. And so people are behind, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. They don't see that as a salesperson, you're trying to catch them up. And it's really a lot of the challenges I see is people get way ahead of that. They're kind of talking about this huge vision and all the stuff, and people are like, whoa, I'm back here. Right. Like, I need to get caught up. And I think that's the biggest challenge for any marketer or growth person. And we'll show, well, I mean, what would you do if you needed that. a lawnmower? You had 400 bucks to spend, you need a lawnmower. What would you do? You'd go to the store, home hardware, or some great Canadian classic. <laughs> yeah. And what would you do? You'd, you'd find the first guy there and say, hey, I need a lawnmower. And he, what would the guy start doing? He would take you to the lawnmower section, and what would he start doing? educating you on everything you need to know to feel comfortable to buy a lawnmower, right? It's not just going to start barking sound bites as you like, cuts fast, 
Twenty <laughs> percent. <laughs> like he wouldn't. He would just like he understands the level of comfort you're going to need, the amount of information you're going to need to make a reasonable passive choice on a lawnmower, and he's going to give it to you. Pros and cons of a couple. What's your price range? Going to help you get there. Going to give you just enough to feel comfortable to purchase. And that's not what we do online. <laughs> we try to like. We try to like ambush people or like sexually assault them or something. It's just like <laughs> you're attacking. <laughs> Stop attacking. Just figure out what the base level of information someone needs to feel comfortable to make your transaction and get them there. I don't know. I think we overthink it sometimes. Yeah. So let's dive into now kind of the differences and your guys' specific experience with um, building out kind of these growth teams and growth strategies uh, for Post Beyond and for Borowell. So Chad, maybe we'll start with you and just obviously it's been a pretty crazy ride, especially, you know, the last, I mean, for you and myself the last year and a bit, but mm -hmm. for you even longer, you know, two and a half years. Um, so I'd love you to talk a little bit about how you've seen, you know, the, the team evolve and, and, you know, what the biggest things have been uh, in terms of, and especially as we look ahead to 2016 now, like how you're seeing uh, the, the team evolve and, and really the, the real keys to growth for, for Post Beyond. For sure. So, I mean, I guess growth in general, this topic, I know we're going to kind of, I can lay that one out there first. Yeah. I think talking about what that means, I think in a startup environment, Jeff nailed it a few minutes ago and that it's, it's being able to take a dollar and turn it into $4, yeah. right? And, and do it in a way that you don't have money in a startup. You don't, you're not a, a bank that has, you know, endless streams of cash. So in a startup, you're trying to do a lot with a little. And that's what growth is. And so, you know, how you go to market depends on your model and your business. And that's so from our perspective, post beyond obviously being an enterprise SaaS product, you know, we're going into fairly lengthy sales cycles. It's always our goal to, to shorten that. But you need infrastructure and resources to support that. You need to think about field sales. You need to think about customer success. And so for the last year, certainly... Uh, as the journey we've been on, you know, we've pretty much 5X'd our team internally wow. in one year. And that's, it's, it's been pretty crazy. And that's, it's been a really cool experience. The way I look at growth is really in a B2B environment is managing a customer experience. So we just kind of touched on that end to end. And everyone in, in every business I've been a part of, it's very siloed thinking, right? So you have a marketing team, you have a sales team, and you know, let's just talk about our team. We have a customer success team. You have three teams. And it's very easy to get in your own day-to-day -day of what you're doing and, and you don't really speak to each other. Like you're, you're kind of, oh, I need to work with my clients. I need to manage these accounts. I need to sell deals. I need to, you know, our sales development group wants to pass, you know, opportunities to sales. But it's not cohesive, right? So you, you sit and look at this. And I think the biggest challenge for any company is a lot of this stuff, no matter what the environment. But making sure that an experience of so someone, we just talked about content. Someone reads a piece on your website and they get in their head, oh, they start thinking about themselves. If that's being done properly, that person is really in a, in a learning state. Then they come through, you know, tools, and we can talk about tool set in a sec, but they come through into a sales development person and they have a conversation. And then there's a bit of a qualification, and that not being done properly curbs the whole thing right there. So you've done all this work to get them there, and you can, it's make or break. So you need to be able to really be warm, not be you know salesy. It's like it's a new approach. You kind of have to be a marketer. And the way I see B two B is that everyone needs to put on a customer success hat. That term is another buzzword that's sort of been overused. But everyone in the business is is in is after the same thing. And whether you're a person at the top of the funnel or lower in the funnel, you need to be thinking like 
that onboarding type of person, right? You need to sit in the customer support chair, which we can talk about, right? Like why you need to talk to customers, you need to understand what their needs are. And it's not just a dollar figure, right? And, and so in B2B, certainly I've learned that the more seamless you can make it, the more, the more successful you're going to be. And so from a post-beyond perspective, we have, you know, a five, six month sales cycle. Typically, you know, most businesses, this is a cross organizational buy. So there's definitely five plus people that are usually involved. You know, you have a, a marketing communications person, leader that loves it. They, they understand their world of marketing. You have HR, likes it, employees, and, and, and then you have buyer. You have the, you know, whether it goes up the chain or goes to procurement, goes to legal, all these people. So for us, we have a fairly complex stakeholder environment. And so we need to really be good at understanding who this champion is, who, who really sees the vision, you know, we need to pitch a big vision of what it looks like three years from now. We're in the world of transforming companies. So we need to understand that that is what it's going to take. So really the experience, we're pitching them on what the experience will be later. Uh, we are a SaaS subscription model, which we'll I'll certainly talk about why that's always on and why everyone does need to be in, in the world of customer success. But the way I see it is if, if everyone in the business, you know, Everyone needs to have their role and specialize, but they also need to have that frame of mind because you will not be successful ongoing in, in the business if the sale, the original sale isn't going to be what the sale is next year. The client can cancel and that's the world we live in. There's a subscription, there's, you know, like a magazine. I can say, I don't want GQ anymore next year and they can turn it off. And the, the more seamless you make your experiences, the more lifetime value and the true value you're going to get out of your customers. And for us, the biggest thing for me that I've learned in, in sort of building our customer success group in the last six months or so is that that needs to be brought back to every other area of our team. We need to have that mentality in sales. We need to have that mentality in sales development and marketing and really in product, right? It, it's Everyone needs to put on that hat. And so trying to translate that across everybody is it gets harder to do when you get to 20 plus people. And I know you talked about the size of where you guys are. It's kind of, that's that perfect size because everyone does know what everyone's doing. We're not at the point where we're getting past that. And so the hardest thing operationally is to make sure that these things operate in a similar fashion because there's disconnects. And then people are expect, their expectations are this and they get this. And that's a bad customer experience that's going to end up churning at the end of the day. So we haven't had those challenges. You know, we've had a great great people like yourself and, and others that really speak to the vision of what this can be and that carries weight and that carries vision. But ultimately if it's not, and, and as you scale and as you add customers at higher velocity, it's going to be a problem. And so that's definitely how I see sort of growth. Uh, it's go to market, it's, it's strategy around that stuff and at this stage. And until we get to 30, 50 employees, it needs to be a uniform thing before you can start to get more specialized. So. Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? I think I know from a B2C perspective, you guys, you know, it's much more kind of transactional, self-serve customer experience where, you know, someone's, and I think you guys have done a really good job of building that initial trust with, you know, the, the branding that you guys have put behind it and then the content that you speak of, but, you know, from a, from a growth perspective and how you guys are looking at, um, you know, scaling out your, your team and getting that, you know, those key points of leverage that you talked about. Love if you could just shed some light on, you know, your thoughts of growth in B2C. Sure. Um, well, traditionally, customer acquisition costs and financial services is high. So that's the hot button issue and what everyone looks at and why certain people think, you know, that the industry is challenged. So we have to take an acquisition cost focus to everything we do. Um, and I think 
I saw this presentation on growth hacking the other night and it was talking about funnels and for a long time funnels have been like not cool anymore. It's not a, a funnel, it's a cycle and all this. But like, I don't know, I still think growth hackers think in funnels because I think funnels are addressable. I think you can measure them, you can study them, you can experiment on them and ultimately you can optimize them. And these optimizations are important because four or five small optimizations compound into like a really big difference. So we think of funnels and then we think not of one funnel but of multiple funnels and the ghosts of funnels present past and future you've got the past ones that haven't worked the present ones that you're trying to get to work and the future ones that you envision and what you envision is a funnel that's like a step change cheaper than the funnel you're currently working on right because you're working on the current one and you're trying to optimize it and get better you know one percent better every week which compounds as well but you're also looking for what the next funnel is going to be that just drops you to the next price point. So to me, that's how we spend a lot of our time. We have a certain percentage of our, mar our marketing spend that we earmark to um, experimentation and experimental advertising. And then the larger percentage goes towards supporting whatever our champion is, the one that we've been working on and nurturing for the longest. And when we do the work on, on the big portion, the champion, you know, we're fine tuning, we're figuring out demographics and day parting and new ways to target. Because in Canada, you can't target, our minimum credit score for a borrower is 660. It's probably 80%, 75% of Canada, but it, it's a decent score. Um, a lot of people looking for loans de in desperation have lower credit scores. In the States, because their privacy laws are different and their online banking infrastructures, you know, years ahead of ours, um, it's, it's quite different than in, in the Canadian market. We, have to, we can't target by credit score. We can't, um, you know, in Mint in the States it has credit score and uh, Credit Karma in the States has credit score. They're very credit score focused. Um, and we can't advertise just to 660s, but we always ask the question, if we could only advertise to 660s, what would our funnel look like compared to putting a whole bunch of sub 660s into the, into the funnel? And we pay for the credit check as well as for the click. So those are, are expensive people. So the better we get at it has um, a, big, a big result. So we spend all of our day trying to figure out how we can target as a proxy for credit score. Um, and that's pretty fun. <laughs> it's really fun. And we're getting better at it and we're getting more advanced. But I think at the end of the day, because we took a growth marketing approach, we first looked for a small sign of life, a proof that a channel is working. Then we dedicated the resources, the time, the money, the mind share, the expertise, the study to get really good at it. But only once it made, we knew we weren't wasting our time and money. And that's a big difference. A lot of people jump into something and you know, waste a lot of time and money before they find out that it's not the right move. So within our current funnels, we're experimenting and futzing and on, on the big piece, we're trying to get it a little bit better every week. And on the small experimental piece, we're looking for something that may lead to one of those step changes where you learn something that just changes the trajectory of your, just drops your CPA. Um, and they happen, um, but they happen very infrequently. Um, the, the numbers say that one and a half out of every 10 experiments you run will bear fruit. Um, so it's just like flipping heads five times in a row, it can happen, you know? And you to, to us and to my team, we need to stay dedicated to the practice to be able to weather through a whole bunch of stuff that really doesn't make much of a difference. Or that you think's making much of a difference, but isn't. So you weather through the storms, but you're also searching for 
you know, the golden hack, which is going to do something that's going to really, really change the dynamics of your customer acquisition. Um, and they're out there. You just have to know where to look and think a, a, about it a little bit differently. Um, so yeah, it's very challenging because you need to be so focused on the short term and, and you know, you old hockey stick, and at the, but you also have to be thinking nine months and three years down the road. So that's the challenge is to be able to make the decisions today in the context of what you need to do now and what's good for the medium term at least. What's your process for collaborating with you know growth and customer acquisition team and product team? Like, how, how do you guys work with, obviously, you know, the product team has to make a lot of those tweaks if you guys find, hey, this is you know, working well or we're hitting a snag at this point. Like, what's that kind of feedback loop look like? Well, it's, it's actually it's super intense with us because it's not just tweaks to the website and conversion rate optimization. We have underwriting rules that determine who instantly gets an offer and who doesn't. And we're basically trusting a whole pile of money to this algorithm that they're going to properly place this money. So in a traditional company that's in a growth phase, it's just spend, 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 grow, grow, grow. We'll worry about you know, all these other things later. But a whole bunch of people that we've sent to the website get kicked back because underwriting um, doesn't accept them you know, with an offer. You can think about underwriting as like a, you know, a, a soundboard with 100 dials on it. And all these dials can be turned you know, weaker or tighter. And, and so product market fit's very interesting because we have product market fit across different credit spectrum. With some um, credit scores, we have better product market fit than others. And it constantly has to be measured. But like we can, we, yeah, so underwriting and marketing, it's not that we're at odds at each other. We just both have dials we can turn that are equally as important. And your, you know, our investors tell us what risk level they want with their loans. And, you know, we have to pretty much work within that. But we're constantly, you know, we're constantly supporting each other with data on where we think we can get better. And we're taking little stabs at different, you know, changes to see if we can find that optimal balance of, of um, aggression and conservatism. But it's very rare in this stage of startup to have such growth expectations but constrained by something as strongly as our underwriting algorithm which is a proxy for our debt investors who want a specific type of loans and a specific balance of them so it's very very interesting i figured if i could do this i could <laughs> sell you know speakers or something after <laughs> yeah it's almost like a marketplace two-sided marketplace play right you a little bit yeah that. yeah um it's just the the growth has it, it's a very interesting type of growth because it's hard to know when you're talking to a stranger on facebook whether they're gonna fit your underwriting model yeah. i would suggest it's it's not impossible because we are getting better at it but it's very hard Chad, it really stuck out to me when you were talking about taking $1 and turning that into 4 obviously, as a startup company being strapped for cash, right? So let's talk a little bit about Jason Lemkin's recent post on Saster, you know, him talking about asking for a million dollars, right? Being confident in your deal cycles to push your price up and, you know, really drive up the values of your deals. I've personally found that to be a pretty difficult thing working as a young sales guy to be confident in really, you know, driving those high price points. And also want to talk about, you know, just structuring deals in general, because I know that's something that we've worked on a lot at Post Beyond. What are your thoughts on um, how important it is to 
figure out you know the best way to structure your deals in order to you know increase the increase the value and also kind of optimize uh, the cycles in terms of you know getting people on board quickly and um, maximizing the retention. Sure, like massive conversation. I think any you know you see the SaaS businesses. We're talking earlier about Zenefits and others, and I think. The interesting thing that Jason Lemkin talks about a lot, I'm a huge fan of his and we can point to his blog obviously after this, but you know, this whole solution versus tool sell, right? I mean, if you're seen as a tool, you're never going to get up market. If you're just seen as a piece of the pie and that's getting harder and harder. You know, the, the loom escape of tech marketing tech is what 2000 plus vendors or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so there's that now there's a sales stack. Now there's, you know, there's all these different things going on. So the reality of it is, I think the one thing that we're we're fortunate to have at Postpion is that we do touch a lot of parts of the organization. You know, we are seen as a, a system, more of an infrastructure play, and I think that's been smart on our part is to sort of approach it that way. It's not just a, a little tool that someone's going to use to share social uh, content. It's it's actually a fundamental piece of the business that they need to operation. Is it like a landing page? Is it like a homepage for for the? employees yeah so essentially yeah and you wouldn't really have seen it so i break down a little bit i mean really what we are there's a cms component of it where a a team usually that's marketing communication jointly working with the hr um, it's content driven so they're driving in content from their brand so proprietary content as well as third-party content into a system um, that is post beyond Um, the individual employee then accesses the platform via mobile the web application or say browser extensions, different accessibility points, and they have their own personalized uh, content streams. So similar to what you'd have with say a Flipboard or a Twitter on your own, say consumer, this is inside a business. So a large business, the hard part is, and one thing we've been talking a lot about with customers is the attention issue. Everyone has attention <laughs> as ADD, we'll use that term, when it comes to what they're reading, what they're consuming. I think a huge part of our, our vision and what Post Beyond is, is to actually be that inside a company. If you work at, you know, Scotiabank, at Shopify, any of a number of our clients, they have a lot of really savvy people. They have people that have certain, you know, areas of expertise. How do you capture their attention to be on what is happening in the business and, and not be focused on their Facebook page? We, our vision is to be that, you know, you, they need to be consuming the right information. If you're trying to onboard people, there's definitely a big play for us in sort of new employees, onboarding them, them getting up to speed, ramping up. We provide that sort of always on content flow that they can obviously read, um, but also publish to their own networks um, and share, which is going to drive a lot of value for the business. That could be in recruiting, that could be in certainly marketing funnels as we've been talking about. But the individual, in our opinion, is a lot more powerful than a brand and always will be, certainly in the social world. So that's our play. It's, it's, it's people versus brand. So that's a bit of a nutshell of what, what Post Beyond is. In terms of pricing, I back to that. I think you know going up market is very it's a strategic thing. You know you have to be able to structure deals and understand people's value. the The reality of value creation is is doing it specifically with the customer and helping them talk with each other. I think if there's anything I've learned, you're not in a deal in our world until they are debating across the table with each other and across their business units and trying to be better. So, you know, being able to show more value and get into bigger conversations is all about ROI, it's all about the value creation, it's all about how they see. If they're gonna spend, you know, two million dollars with Post Beyond, how are they gonna see, you know, 10, 10 million in return, realistically? Like how how do they envision that? And I think for us a lot of that is focused on certainly internal productivity, but also external um, you know, 
eyeballs and, and a lot of more marketing facing stuff. So we, we are in an interesting space that way. I think we, we fundamentally want to be a, a go-to piece of their tech infrastructure, you know, the way that they can make a, a truly social business, a social enterprise. Um, that's our game. So how you price it, I think back to the tool solution thing, it's very easy to, to commoditize yourself and feel like, oh, like, you know, afraid to ask, afraid to make that ask, afraid to say, you know, yes, it's 500K and this is where we set a bar. You know, from our experience, and you can certainly speak this as well, you, you have to, to, to show value, you have to build a relationship that will never go away. The reality is it's all about the ask and it's all about showing value against that ask. And, and there's many ways to do that, which is a whole other podcast. But the reality is that to get out market and to get to, especially as a subscription-based product, you need to be able to touch on various value points and metrics. And that's that's what's going to get it done. And so, you know, navigating stakeholders is a whole other thing and who, who cares about what. But understanding fundamentally where they sit in their current state um, you know, there's a book I'll point to and resource at the end that's very, very good about this, but talking about the mental model, everyone has an idea of the world. They see the world through their eyes. In our world, if you can't explain that, um, you know, and understand that well, you're never going to get them to this one that you're trying to get them to, right? So it's all breaking down the A or the mental model they have, where their head is at now to get them to B. And we're in a world of digital transformation. It's very, very aggressively changing. It's a paradigm shift from traditional legacy software to, you know, Zenefits in the HR payroll space. You got like all this different stuff that's taking out the SAPs of the world, you know, sorry, SAP, but you know, any of the legacy players, there's new stuff that's coming in and people want to use it. And, and that's where we're seeing the shift. So that's the game. And, and that's the game that SaaS is in. That's the game that's disrupting a lot of the different stuff, whether it's the banks or it's, you know, these legacy players in software, traditional buys versus SaaS buy, that that's all happening now. And so the paradigm shift, it's really important to get up market. You need to understand that and you need to understand how they're going to buy it. So if you go up market and you're expensive, <clears throat> How do you avoid being the people Zenefits replaced? So Zenefits replaced spending seven figures on your own system for X99 a month, right? So if you're up market, how do you defend yourself from someone going sass on your ass? It's <laughs> <laughs> a great. I just made it, that up on the spot. No, I love it. It's a really good question. I, I mean, the reality is come back, comes back to our integrated approach, right? I mean, if you're not, and, and I've brought up, yeah. obviously, the best example in the world right now is Slack. You know, Slack becomes a fundamental business application that ties to really everything you're doing. You know, if you're using it in, in the ways you can, you can do a million things. Your ticket system can come there. It becomes your fundamental commu communication layer in your business. That's in a modern sense. A lot of businesses are way behind and will never use Slack yet, right? I mean, your, your legacy environment and behind firewalls and your Microsoft and all that stuff. So realistically, you need to be able to understand, back to again the current state discussion, to be able to stay up market and, and build that every year or every whatever your contract states, you need to be a fundamental must have. You know, it's, it's stickiness. It's it's they can't they don't have any interest in ripping out. They would lose more money doing so. So I think the fundamental thing for us, the fact that we're a distributed based product. You know, it's many people use it. It's not a one person use case. It's it's a core team that then supports a lot of other teams. So our play is, it, you know, fundamentally from our strategy is to really help businesses understand the new landscape of tech, mm -hmm. plug into a lot of their modern tools, obviously B2B, it's very important, um, you know, marketing automation and a lot of the workflows we were talking about that's going to end up in a bottom line um, transaction. But 
realistically, you know, you need to really understand their, their current status and where they're going to go. And I think it's really interesting to see where people's heads are at with that discussion period. Mm -hmm. Forget about post beyond what do you, where do you see your evolution happening in your tech stack? And then we'll help you, you know, make that transition or we'll be a part of that transition. And that, that's an interesting conversation. So that's how we see it. So one of the people I interviewed for the book was the head of growth for um, uh, HubSpot's Sidekick project. Yeah. And that was particularly interesting because it came out of HubSpot Labs. It was like one of their best graduates out of mm -hmm. HubSpot Labs. So the, um, the case study talks about what HubSpot Labs is, what they're trying to do, how um, Sidekick came out of it, and how they growth hacked to, I think they're up to 200,000 users or something. And um, she talks about something that I think you guys will be really interested in called B to C to B which is what, um, I don't know, 50% of people will say this is what Slack does, the other 50% will argue that, that it's different. But basically getting the people within the groups to want it and then spread it out to the groups that way. Yeah. Um, both in terms of getting them on the free trials and in terms of it's obvious at some point that you should pay the little amount they're asking for. <laughs> so she calls it B2C to B and I think it's, and that's the theme of the case study is B2C to B and I think it's a, you guys will enjoy that. I can touch on that a little bit more because it's, so bang on. I've been reading, so there's a guy by the name of Kenny Van Zant that ran, he's a super smart guy, he ran Asana early days and a bunch of other huge, huge companies and he has this idea of flywheel uh, business models and it comes down to very strong product engineering, billing, uh, very much so what Slack has done and others um, to be able to manage this. But the idea is that you, it's a groundswell sort of play. So similar to what Slack, uh, Yammer is another example that did this and there's a lot of case studies on them, but you know, went to the employees first, sort of from, from the bottom up. It was a bottom up sell. And the ideal being that, you know, freemium models and ways you do this to actually monetize, but you know, you're getting into groups of people that really like the product, they start using it and it actually starts to go within a large organization, which again is through, through our eyes, but you go into it from the bottom up. It's not necessarily selling to the CMO and the CMO is saying everybody use this. It's actually, you know, the team's going through this process of, oh, I like this too, I like this too. And then it like, it has groundswell, so then it's purchased at a higher layer. Mm -hmm. So you kind of go up through the mountain that way. And he refers to it as a, a flywheel business model. I know Tom Tunga is as well. We're going to talk about him a little bit, but um, he, he talks about this and there's a good post on it. But the idea that this flywheel business model is always on. It's, it, it sells for you on the weekends. It's, you know, this kind of modern way of doing things and, and that you don't need to be face-to-face -face or in a, in a traditional selling environment. It's like people can pass it around. They can refer each other. They can sort of do all this stuff. And it's really interesting. And so it is that B to C to B, you know, like E, however you want to look at it. But, you know, in the enterprise, you see the IT world of what an IT team even looks like changing so much. And, you know, the CTO, IO, how they think about security and all these things. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a whole discussion, again, another podcast on that and, and, and the tools that people are using on their own time yeah. versus their professional time. But that's the way I see that is like that, that flywheel well, sort of model, certainly in B2B, where you can actually get this you know, thing working. But what people take for granted 100% of the time is that the product has to speak. I mean, if the product doesn't speak, it can't spread. So like HubSpot, you know, you're sitting on a computer and a little thing pops up and it says... James Smith just checked your email or James Smith just forwarded your email to so-and-so and the other one's like, how the hell did you make it do that? Like the product just spoke. Or like um, any word on, on the Andrew Smith account. Yeah, I just saw you check my email seven minutes ago. How, how the hell do you know that? 
like the product is speaking, so it's really easy to spread. Then they ask for not a million dollars, not $500,000, they ask for like $10. You know, like the manager doesn't even need approval. The manager could put 12 people on without needing approval, right? Throws on the credit card. So like all of a sudden, there's no friction. It's the product speaks and there's no friction. And I imagine you can make oodles of money that way. <laughs> That's a huge, huge thing with us, like especially with Post Beyond, why we, you know, from a stickiness factor, and the, I mean, this gets into, I'm sure you probably read the Near AL stuff on like, you know, building uh, sticky products and the hook model and all that stuff. But, you know, the notifications for us, especially in the enterprise where, you know, because we're going with this distributed model where we're getting, you know, thousands of employees to use the product, we're relying on, you know, for it to be sticky, we need, need them to keep coming back and keep coming back. So, you know, things like, uh, you know, we built in email notifications and push notifications to your phone where... Notifications shoot dopamine. Exactly. <laughs> I love notifications. <laughs> A good notification is just like squirt. <laughs> oh man, I was listening notifications <laughs> real fast. I was listening to uh, John Borthwick, who is the founder of BetaWorks, the other day. He was on a, it was a podcast I was listening to, and he talked about notifications as a business in itself. It's actually the business like they're in. So BetaWorks is very interested in doing and in getting into the business of actually notifications and how those work and how it's actually this whole whole bigger thing, right? How people get notifications at their smart notifications, how they get them on their phone and how the phones, the iOS and Android one I've created, you know, with the swipe down now and you can actually set your notifications and you set how you get them, but actually then making them smarter, making them make you smarter. So you want to know what's happening when and like, it's super, it was super interesting. So we'll point to that and as the well. the browser but, now too, you can't escape it. With yeah. browser notifications, I'm starting to get more and more of that's why your intercom's done so well too. Like that's a really cool company to talk about. Like their combination of content marketing stuff, but then also like the product experience. You know, full scale from you know the you know their their on site chat features, in app chat features, but then also all the analytics for like you know just how much if someone's not engaging right. Like for us, Post Beyond this is huge. Where you know if we're selling to a thousand employees, but only you know two hundred are adopting we need to be able to build in those triggers to get that other 800, like you know, have the technology do the work for us to get those other 800, you know, up to speed and engage and, and seeing the value, right? Because, you know, if we're going to try to get up market and be it, you know, a $5 million solution or a deal, you know, in a couple of years, we need you know, to have the technology do the work in addition to, you know, the, the customer success team that we built up. But well, the employees, we always talk about, you know, for us, the employee experience is the customer experience. And you said the B2B to, you know, we sell it to a business, but within the business, people are people, you know, it's, it's not, yeah. you know, your consumer, you're in a business. It's sort of, for us, it's like the business is interested in a lot of the metric driven, you know, things that we provide them, but you're ultimately, it's a consumer play within that. And so that's where, you know, it's funny you bring up Intercom because they were at Web Summit and was talking with those guys about, you know, in my head, even with Postbeyond is like having that chat capability for the admins in our product to talk to their users yeah. you know it's almost like a really interesting you know the city that is the enterprise these yeah. days right people don't know each other down the hall and so you're trying to really help them and so it's interesting problems that we're trying to to solve and, and help these companies communicate better and just learn better and so it's 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 kind of can go in many ways of how, how you do that do you guys segment how do you guys segment your potential customers into personas of some type yeah, so we, yeah, Persona is a really interesting discussion. So for us, we definitely, in every case, have someone that, that is the champion 
person, right? They run the program and it's so, so vital because the, the system runs off of this team, right? They, they support the content. It's all about they're pulling together a lot of different things. So our big value at first is doing that. Like how do we, you know, get a team to collaborate that works maybe in different areas, but content runs the engine, right? It's the gasoline to the car, right? So we need this, that persona is very specific. It's starting to get, and that's where for us on growth and marketing and, and 2016 planning is a lot around that kind of stuff. You know, how do we really target these people much like you do the, um, the credit scores? It's like really focusing on who these people are that mobilize the enterprise and are thinking mm -hmm. in a new world. Um, and then they talk to the various stakeholders. A lot of our selling happens without us, which I'm sure is similar to most. Right, but I would think that your business particularly, and maybe we'll sit down and talk about it sometime, yeah. like you would have these big strips of like industry, 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 and you could pick any one, and because your product's really great, it could probably be successful amongst all of them. But there's gonna be these veins that run through the blocks that if you can figure out and you could really target just the people who the product speaks to like the way they operate and what their visions are and values and how they view social and all that, then you could kill it because you wouldn't have to just block out an industry. You could find that exact vein. So like what we do, we, we have personas that, you know, we don't really share out in the open, but what they do is they sort of ask, answer the question, who does our value proposition give the most value to literally totally. the most value. And you look at the top four and you ask questions, are they reachable? Can you get at them? Is it going to be expensive to get at them? What would you say? Where? How much? Like all those questions. And you pick the ones where you feel your value proposition offers the most value. I'll give you one example. Like we live above, we work above a bank. If we needed to make three trips to a branch, we could do it. We'd hate it. <laughs> you know, like I hate being judged in person if I could be judged online. You know what I mean? Like, say no to me. Tell me I don't qualify from the comfort of my own boxers at home. Like, don't make me get dressed up and come to a branch. But, like, it would be in mildly inconvenient for us to not go down to a branch three times to fill out applications, sign papers, bring in supporting document. If we live 40 minutes away from the closest bank branch, we're no longer talking mildly inconvenient. You see how the value proposition can be important to two, but, yeah. like, much more acute for one? Find that vein of acuteness, if that's a word, that goes through all these different blocks. Mm -hmm. And now, like, you've got more fish in the barrel or the barrel's smaller or something. Some yeah. shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that whole targeting conversation in general, I think, is the, is the main thing. You know, you can go and spend a lot of money on marketing activity. You can, you know, put a budget together and say, hey, we're going to go out at at this and spend this money on Facebook and ad, ad tech and retargeting and all these things to reach this air coverage of this audience, but you just burn through it. Yeah, yeah. And if you're not picking that vein and getting a lot more, you know, acutely aware of what you're actually after. And I think that's where in our environment, yours as, as much as ours, like you start to get more data and know more. And the magic is being able to reverse engineer it all. Yeah. How do you, you know, now you know what, a, and that's where I think the, the, the customer success thing comes in. A lot of companies like ours, you, you do have the feedback loop and you need to, that's the name of the game. If you, if you can't actually speak to how you're going to now go at new customers based on the ones you have and actually really boil down those folks mm -hmm. and, and be able to target now target them much more effectively in the places yeah. they live, in the communities they work in online. In the way they want offline. it, in the message they need. 
Blah, that's blah, it. Blah. And, and so the hard part is it's starting. Like, the hard part is starting. Once you do get some customers, you build your initial traction up, you start to, like, you know, do contracts and see how that flow works yeah. and what works. Now you can start to double down. And that's the whole right. thing with the experience. I think growth as a topic Right. In in your world, it's much much more Arab. It is in ours too, but it's it is doubling down on what you've seen and and know is successful with a lot of confidence and conviction that you can now double down, pour money into that bucket, and it's going to turn out that four or five x that you're looking for. Yeah, and I think unless you really really know the customer, it's hard to come up with like a golden egg. And I, I say like on day zero, your, your, let's say three or five personas are hypotheses. Mm-hmm. And on day a hundred, it's like 25% data and 70% and, and you constantly look back and forth and they're like, which ones were we right about and which ones were, did we guess wrong and just keep going back and forth because they could change. They'll change. You'll guess and be wrong. You'll misread a group. For a while, we thought nurses, and it still may be true to all the nurses out there, but we thought <laughs> nurses were, con- were converting into borrowers at an alarming rate, and we didn't know why. And I feel like we probably misread either a small data size or something that happened, mm-hmm. but like we could still be running around today in hospitals targeting nurses, and maybe we should. But you know, like there's a lot of reasons why what you guess your um, personas are going to be aren't, mm-hmm. and you have to adjust them. Talk about tools. I love to talk about tools a little bit, just in terms of like you just brought so many interesting things to mind for me, like how you actually even understand that. So in a in a B two C world, you know, I'm trying to understand how to target better, how to. It's all passive and online and persona based. But like, what do you use analytics wise? Like, what does a stack look like for Borowell right now? If you don't mind sharing some of it. But so our tech team um, comes from another big um, loan or, or mortgage technology company where they built the whole platform for this company. So um, when we launched, we launched with an MVP that was really like WordPress and a whole bunch of stuff duct taped together with this cloud lending platform on top of Salesforce. But literally it was like full out proof of concept mode. And to date, you know, um, on we, we, we launched a new version two weeks ago, but on that old version, we probably put $250 million of loan application volume through this little WordPress site and we're able to onboard the loads and manage them and stuff and um, that's a vanity metric because we haven't given out 250 million in loans but it still said that Canadians were willing to trust this little website and this little forum with some pretty private information so it was cool that they were able to do it Um, and then we figured out how our processes were going to work and how everyone wanted it and then IT spent the last six months building this new loan management system and it's amazing and it's like custom built for all our processes because we learned off the MVP, which I thought like I knew was the right way to go, but it was really cool to experience wow. that transition. Um, and now we've got a great system and we can do a lot more customization with it than ever before. And I can do way more testing and stuff on it than ever before. And it's literally built for, it's like, um, a custom made shirt or something, you know, like it just fits the way you want it. You don't have to roll the sleeves up because it's too long or, you know, there's something you have to sacrifice. And that came from us um, learning off the MVP and not building to what we thought it was going to be, like actually going through it. And the same thing with marketing automation. Like I tell people, let's automate when the process is literally doing so well that we can't keep up with it. Let's not automate in advance of processes that may turn out well. You know what I mean? We launched an affiliate program. No one shared it. 
What if I spent you know, six months coming up with the most amazing affiliate system or put $30,000 into it? It would have been a total utter failure, but we were able to learn really quickly whether it was going to work or not. So our stack's not that impressive. Like on, on the loan management system, honestly, we could sell this to other lenders. We could SaaS it, you know, so it, it's amazing. Like they did such an amazing job with it. Um, the tip of the iceberg affects the customer, like the loan um, application process is cooler. And then the, the compliance steps that they have to do, there's like two or three online steps they have to do afterwards is so much easier and the context is great. But on the back end, it's like night and day. It was really hard working with Cloud Lending and Salesforce when you know, we had all, it was custom Salesforce too. So in terms of data integration, we weren't based on the structure that they were based on. So all the API integrations basically didn't work. So it was very challenging. Um, but I mean, in terms of marketing stack, I mean, we, we just use Google Analytics for everything. We do our Facebook advertising with a company called AdEspresso. It's just an online service that lets you really easy test a lot of ads. Um, we get a ton of data out of that for marketing. We have an agency in the States that handles our search engine marketing. Um, so we literally focus strictly on Facebook and new channels, which is great because, you know, you get better and better and better and better. Um, I like to say that Rob and I are trying to become the best Facebook marketers in Canada. And I think it's not that we think we are, it's that we want to become it. So I don't think that that's arrogant to say. I think that's a great goal to have once you know that, you know, you're doing pretty well on, on Facebook. But that's what we try to do. And we do the things that people that would have that goal would do, you know, figure out who to follow and where to go and all that kind of stuff. So it's been really cool. But we don't use anything that crazy. We don't use anything that crazy. Um, we duct tape everything together until we know that it's going to work. And then once we know that it makes sense, that's when we get into it. Everything needs to be backed up with data. So I can't just go on a whim and say, hey, let's do this. They're going to say, show me the case for it, which is great. You know, keeps you honest. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's cool. We, we have a very interesting culture because underwriting and lending money is by nature conservative. And growth marketing is by nature aggressive. And... Um, it's fun. <laughs> it's not bad at all. It's fun. That's a wrap on another episode of Hunter and Craft Radio. Really hope you guys enjoyed that discussion. And kudos if you made it to the end and are listening to this right now because that was definitely a long episode. But uh, we really you know, thought there was a lot of great stuff in there and wanted to leave it all in for you. Make sure to keep in touch with Jeff on Twitter at Jeff underscore Goldenberg. And you can find myself on Twitter at Evan Lewis underscore and Chad at CJK McCaffrey. And we would love if you could follow Hunter and Craft on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our email list at hunterandcraft.com. Until next time, take care, guys. <laughs>